There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hello, Charlie. Hey, so a major thing has happened while you've been out on paternity leave. I know you're just wrapping up a few more weeks. What's that? Well, we have hit our 200th episode. Oh, good grief. <laughs> How does it make you feel? That's like the, the, the way too much pop music over analysis that we've put out into the world. I guess, you know, we could spend a whole hour breaking it down. But I think what we should do is do what we always do. Pick a song. I've got a fun thing for everybody. But before we get to it, I just want to say a big thank you first to you for being mm. a phenomenal co-host. It is the most fun thing we could possibly do with our lives, and I am very grateful. And I want to say thank you also, of course, to our team, and most of all, to all of our listeners. You are the reason why we do this. And uh, I just want to say um, you're welcome. <laughs> all right, enjoy the show. <laughs> Welcome to Switch Down Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding, and today I am joined by a very special guest, Chili Gonzalez, musical genius. Gonzo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is long overdue. We've been planning this for years. And what's fun is we get to break down some material which is uh, truly old and also somewhat new. You have put out a holiday album called A Very Chilly Christmas. And You describe it as from feudal oldies to newer holiday pop canon. A very chilly Christmas has grandeur and solemnity, an original featuring Feist and covers featuring Jarvis Cocker. And of course, there's Mariah Carey, which is very important. But today, I'm particularly interested in zooming in into one song because there's one track on here that frankly comes as a bit of a surprise to me. And it's Wham's Last Christmas. When you hear Wham's Last Christmas, what does it make you think of? Probably what everyone else thinks of. The video, the sweaters, the the, the sort of playful faces of a, of a snowball fight gone horribly right. <laughs> Last Christmas I gave you my heart But the very next day you gave it away This year to save me from tears I'll give it to someone special I think it's a very kitschy artifact that's still quite heartwarming yeah. uh, for our generation. It's a deceptively strange song uh, when you realize mm. that it's not really a formulaic, genetically engineered hit. You mm. can hear that it's the song of an auteur, I would say. Uh, the song is credited to Wham!, but in reality is a 100% George Michael show. I understand he played everything on it. He played all the synths, all the program on the drum right. machine. Yeah, yeah. He, he pulled a Stevie or a Prince or whatever you want to call it and decided yeah. to go full auteur, played every note. And I just got fascinated with the singularity of the vision that could make this song. And that coupled with his reputation as something so kitschy, that always <laughs> interests me because you tend to think of kitschy, guilty pleasures, as, as some people call them, as being, you know, overly calculated, overly eager to please, desperate right. in some way for attention. Especially a holiday song. That's right. But I don't really think Last Christmas is that. I think it is mm. more layered, more complex, 
a little bit more, I'm going to sound very pretentious to use a French word, aléatoire, which sort of means random, but hmm. uh, also just means something unto itself. Yeah. And that's what I got fascinated with as I tried to play it on the piano, because when you play a song that has such a distinct production and you reduce it on the mm. piano, and that's the power of the piano is it reduces songs to that atomic level. I suddenly realized, hmm, the verses of this song don't really exist. It's more a chorus that keeps on repeating, and then these kind of freestyle things that we call verses, for lack of a better term, which are more just like um, cadenzas or riffs or uh, would feel more like improvised sort of uh, repartee, almost like recitative in an opera. I'd love for you to to break this down a little bit. You say that there are these these different sections. We have a a primary chorus and then these recitatives. Could you show us a little bit of of what you mean by this? Yes. So in opera, recitative was a sort of name given to all the stuff that happens in between the hits, which are called right. arias. It tends to be non-repeating stuff to our modern ears. It just sort of sounds like weird pitter-patter. You know, <laughs> in an opera, they, they literally will have a section where it's like, please come in, sit yourself down, and da-da-da-da-da. And, it, it, you know, it tends to have these sort of uh, stopping and starting effect. And you, it's not something you can really hum along with. If you listen to the opera thousands of times, you might commit it to memory. But it's not really meant to be taken as arias, which are these sort of money shot moments in operas, the equivalent of songs in musicals where a very particular feeling gets sort of uh, expressed by the hero or heroine of the story. And so I sort of liken the aria part of Last Christmas would obviously be the chorus. confessional it's mm. talking about how last christmas he expressed his love to someone and then ended up being rejected it's very classic chord and melody structure in a sense i know you guys have gone through these shifts from major to minor thousands mm. of times because what a great pop song does is it paints the words with the chords and so mm. you know when he says last christmas i gave you my heart we're still in relatively positive territory we're mm. sort of there with him as he dared to sort of dream that his love might be requited. So we have a major chord, right? And as soon as he sort of tells, well, this is actually what happened, all of a sudden we go to a minor chord, and it's quite sad what happened because the person who was the recipient of his love gave it away. And then we go to, you know, very typical almost 50s sort of high school ballad kind of chord progression and that in itself i suppose is the the iconic part of last christmas could sort of leave it there. That's more or less what I did. I really focused my version on going back and forth between this classic aria, uh, melody and chords, and alternated it with a part where there's no singing at all. So the strange thing about Last Christmas is that you hear this chorus part, and right away the chords continue, but you're treated to a keyboard solo. It's the first thing you hear after the chorus. That's quite strange. I can't think of that many songs that do that. And again, I have to think of opera for some reason, because in opera, you often have a statement of a theme, and then you'll have some orchestral accompaniment that kind of sums it up. Hmm. Here, we can really hear that George Michael was just exploring. Uh, The solo goes precisely like this. Mm. 
No, I really picture him in the studio and coming up with that, not realizing how iconic his song would be because he just kind of picked out a few notes, I guess, and kind of liked right. that solo. I have a hard time imagining he sat there with like a feather dipping it into the ink and saying, okay, what is the perfect musical response to this chorus I've written? It does sound off the cuff in a really lovely way. I decided to turn that into a kind of cello line that would respond mm. to the melody of the chorus. So in a way, I did what he didn't do. I took out my feather, dipped it in ink, and said, this improvised keyboard solo is now hallowed ground that yeah. I am going to orchestrate with a cello uh, in response to this. Then we have these verses, which are basically unplayable uh, on a piano. Um, like I said, uh, maybe an instrument like a saxophone or one of the more, you know, vocal imitation-friendly instruments, whatever those might be. Maybe some string instrument. So he goes into this verse, you know, once bitten and twice shy. And again, he's improvising. This is, you know, if I yeah. were to play. You know, It didn't really fall under the fingers in the right way. So no, I just kind of yeah. did away with those verses and just sort of focused on, again, that back and forth between the improvised keyboard solo and the iconic chorus. But it's so interesting that these verses have this improvised quality because when he comes back to them, he doesn't use the same melody. I have the feeling that he had the lyrics written down on a piece of paper and essentially just let rip. Mm. <laughs> and uh, in that way, maybe he's, you know, maybe even in some ways closer to how a rapper might approach, not being that precise in the melodic and rhythmic placement of verses, but rather having the text sort of give you the the impetus to sort of right. improvise around and find a perfectly imperfect take of your verse, you know, always leading up to a chorus that's much more like etched in stone and iconic. That's an interesting way of composing a piece because in a song that is pretty long with a lot of moving back and forth between chorus, verse, chorus, verse, the verse actually provides a great degree of sort of freshness. There's some, always a different way that he performs it. And so we stay grabbed into the song and ready to hear the iconic chorus again. You've, of course, uh, shortened the piece down to sort of focus really in on, on that that core moment. One of the things that I love about his melody is that <laughs> despite what can sound like some pretty kitschy production today, there's just this great degree of sentimentality in the construction of his melody. I was wondering if you might even just like slow it down on the piano and really sort of highlight those really sentimental moments where yes. the melody is not quite in concert with the chords underneath. That's right. So, and I just want to just circle back for a second. What yeah. you said about the the freshness of that verse, the keyboard solos, then coming back to the chorus. The chords never change in the original Wham version. Right. We really have a template like a rap song um, where you have the same music that literally just continues. Um, and even the variation in what instruments are playing, the drums are pretty much going whole hog the whole time. Synthesizer mm -hmm. pretty much there the whole time. So there isn't even the sort of subtle changes in instrumentation that you often get in modern pop where it's true that you often have the same chord progression go through an entire song. Contra songwriting from the 50s to the 80s, which tended to view chord changes as a particular way of creating variation. Now mm. people tend to do that with sound. I tend to say that sound right. has replaced harmony in that respect. Mm -hmm. That's where arrangement comes from, whether a sound mm. is playing or not, rather than whether the chords have changed. Mm. But to get to what you're saying, and this brings us back, we start with this major chord, but the first note is not technically part of that chord. And even though it's not horribly dissonant, that chord, 
which is the second degree. You know, a major chord starts, it has a one, has a three and a five. That's what we call a major triad. And every song, Christmas or not, will tend to pick one of those notes as its starting point. It's fairly rare. I mean, I really was racking my brain to think of songs that would start with this second degree. There are. There's Joanna <laughs> by Cool and the Gang. There's Barry Manilow's Can't Smile Without You. We have the same second degree. And in fact, Barry Manilow did sue George Michael for huh. uh, perceived copyright infringement because his song goes... Smile without you. I can't smile without you. I mean, it really is quite similar to uh, to last Christmas, and I, I think they settled out of court, if I'm not mistaken. But starting with that second degree is something you would definitely would not hear in an old Christmas carol. Let's say that it has more of a this angular perspective that you would yeah. never find in an old folk song because folk songs weren't about one person's perspective. They were about something mm. collective. You don't hear mm. the word I in an old Christmas carol. Here mm. we're definitely in some other territory because we're in the world of pop music, which comes from the culture of the individual mm. and you mm. know the, the hallowing of a musical celebrity. But you have to remember Christmas carols predate all of that mm -hmm. uh, in a really wonderful way. But that means that their melodies tend to have less perspective there's less the ego of the composer or to paraphrase marina abramovich the artist is less present in a old folk song but here the artist right. is present and that permits the artist to say oh i'm gonna start on this benevolent dissonance i guess i would call it which is which should also be added that uh, a Christmas Carol ought to start on a note that we can all grab and easily hear, and it might take someone like a George Michael, someone who is who is a vocalist, to comfortably land on that note at the beginning of a song. Exactly right, exactly right, and and that's why those folk songs have their social function to bring people together because a child right. or an amateur or a highly drunk person all have their <laughs> way into Jingle Bells because the first note is that yeah. third degree. It is one of the three notes of the major triad, and it's obviously something you can pick out. Yeah, right, right. Last Christmas? Ooh. Yeah, you might need some, some training to pull that off. It's colorful. So where does he take us from there? So he... Uh, So what he does is he uses that second degree as a kind of point of tension and then tends to resolve it on the root chord, the first note of the triad, right? which is this. So we have that a couple of times. Last Christmas, we have it once, this sort of tension of the second degree falling to the harmonious first degree. Does it again when he says, I gave you my heart. Mm. Now we have this subtle emotional shift where we have the minor chord. And he uses descending melody because, of course, we've gone into a slightly darker lyrical theme here. So he repeats one more time that same formulation from, from the first line. The very next day. Mm. And then he sort of transposes it. And he does the same trick on the minor chord when he says, gave it away. That gave. Gave. Mm. We have that again, that benevolent dissonance. It's the second degree but this time it's the second degree of the new chord. So mm. he's essentially using the same trick of quick tension and resolution in his melody, uh, all building toward this sort of wistful, you know, when, when melodies fall, we tend to hear them as sort of more wistful. When melodies rise, we tend to think of optimism. It's just a little, a little right. bit like a smile goes up and a frown goes down. <laughs> and essentially, music does tend to mirror that. Um, there are exceptions, of course, to, to yeah. that rule. But in a, in a general rule, I would say that's the case. And some composers are really well known for uh, almost always ending their melodies on something lower. I happen to be one of those composers. I sort of realized at a certain point, I tend to start somewhere build up in a kind of um, hope, but then I always thwart the hope, you know? <laughs> so.
oops, back to where uh. we started. <laughs> that, uh, that that trip to the world of optimism wasn't quite what I was uh, expecting, and I'm sort of back where I started. Um, <laughs> George Michael continues this. The next chord, yeah. you know, when he says, uh, this year, the same trick, the second degree falling to the first degree. It's a little motif. And, uh, and it just continues like that. So it's a, it's a very masterful way of keeping the listener sort of on these tenter hooks because every new chord brings with it that first little tense second degree, not quite part of the chord, and then gives us that little sweet satisfaction of falling into harmony. For me, maybe it's a little melodramatic, but each time I hear that opening tension, it feels like just a miniature heartbreak, right? That 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 line, I gave you my heart, gave it away, and the the, the words and the and the melodic construction just really follow each other so beautifully. so rare that what can sound like a fairly cheesy song from the 1980s is going to make me feel wistful, but wow, does it work on this one? And I think it works particularly well in your translation. I'm curious, as you were thinking about adapting this to solo piano with a little bit of accompaniment, how did you want to shift the sort of emotional weight of the song? What did you want people to feel from it? Well, I wanted to turn it into a carol, which meant I wanted to, in a way, imagine that it would be one of those selfless pieces of folk music. Hmm. You know, carols live in our collective unconscious, and a carol, you don't tend to think of at one particular recording. So you don't have really a sonic blueprint in your mind. If I ask you to think of Jingle Bells, I don't think you're going to think of one recording. You kind of actually have it somewhere in your brain as an abstraction, or to get more pretentious in the platonic world of forms, where Plato would say, how do we know what a circle is? Because we have some uber circle in our mind. And now I look around my house, I see a Christmas wreath, I see uh, a glass full of water, I see all these things that are circles. And I know that they're circles because I compare them to that uber circle that's in my mind. And in a way, carols function the same way. That's why when I play jingle bells in a minor key... broken the platonic ideal we recognize the shape of it you can take so many liberties with one of these songs because it's in your mind already and therefore every new version you do you're just adding to the thousands of versions that have been played before and it's this beautiful feeling of connection with a song because you're not referring to anything except an abstraction in people's minds that's a rare opportunity for me as a musician mm. where mm. I compose my own music or if I do covers I do covers of pop songs for my radio show or other things like that. Suddenly I realized I was on this other very fertile ground because mm. nobody has a recorded version in mind. Now, mm. with Last Christmas, it's completely the opposite. You're, right. you're either fighting against or attempting to, let's say, reappropriate from a version that already exists in people's minds. And right. that includes many dated production techniques that includes the voice of George Michael and a voice, well, there's nothing more individualistic than a voice. It carries with it all of the emotion of the song. So yes, you have to kind of pass this test to move a song like that to the piano and to sort of see, is this song really compositionally sound enough that it will work divorced from all those references? How much are those are those production tricks and the voice of the artist, how much weight are they pushing um, compared to the actual composition of the song? And it's rare that we get that side-by-side comparison of the song as written and the song as recorded. As a pianist, I always felt like the piano is the one instrument that can get us down to that atomic level. It almost removes all references, even though the piano itself 
can be considered a reference. It probably right. has the least amount of referential right. baggage because it has stood the test of time in Western music and you hear it in a rap song as much as you still hear it in classical music, as much as you hear it in jazz. It is the great reducer, let's say, right. as an instrument. Right. So it's a bit of a test to take a song which is so characterized by its time period, its production, uh, the references. And then when you play it on the piano, you get a clean shot at the composition finally. So when I started to play it, I realized, first of all, it definitely passes the test right. uh, as far as the chorus is concerned. But as I told you, those verses didn't really pass that test. <laughs> those verses are linked to George Michael and his semi-improvised, whether it was truly improvised or not, it has the feeling of being improvised, those verses, which are like recitative and which would never work strictly played on a piano, as we saw earlier. So suddenly I realized, okay, uh, the chorus passes that test. Um, I'm going to have to do a shorter version. I'm going to have to orient this version around the chorus. And then I realized I had my golden opportunity with that first keyboard solo, which I'll remind everybody... And that that could be a perfect counterweight. And what's more, the one thing that George Michael doesn't do in his version is sing the chorus and that melody from the keyboard solo at the same oh. time. And that became my concept for the song. That what I'm going to do is treat that offhand sort of whipped off keyboard solo. I'm going to treat it as canon. As I said, I think he just kind of whipped it off. I treated it like it was a pronouncement from... Beethoven himself, you know, <laughs> and and thought, okay, I am going to introduce the chorus. I'm going to introduce the material of the keyboard solo. to the chorus and now we're going to hear that keyboard solo treated even more reverentially by the addition of a cello and a very slight harpsichord giving just some bit more rhythmic um, intention and then my money shot was to play those two together where the chorus the iconic chorus and the tossed off um, keyboard solo suddenly harmonize. hear that moment where you have this yeah. feeling of counterpoint like you would have in an old classical piece. Mm. And that, of course, has a slight Baroque association, counterpoint, mm. which is simultaneous playing of two melodies that sort of, in a sense, accidentally create harmony. is very different from how music is made today where we tend to have a chord in the left hand and a melody in the right. So it was a bit of a throwback to Baroque aesthetics in that also I put in a harpsichord, which right, was the right. precursor to the piano, which has a much more um, sharp kind of sound. Um, and so in a way, I was able to add just a slight Baroque touch to Last Christmas, which I think gives it a gives it a, a nice sheen. And uh, it's something playful as well to imagine a song that we think of as quite cheesy in the 80s and give it the airs of what we consider to be <laughs> high art uh, in terms of uh, Baroque instrumentation. You, you, had, you had said earlier that contemporary songwriting leans so heavily on sound for its arrangement and form as opposed to harmony. And contemporary songs in that way can be harder to translate into solo piano because as you pointed out they might rely so heavily upon sound techniques that just sound 
a little too straight and metric on the piano. You can't have that beautiful melisma, those bends and so on. And so the George Michael track in many ways was sort of ahead of its time and that it was so uh, that it, it's sort of borrowing from a sort of rap style of vocal melodic production uh, and it's also this it's simplicity in its chord forms and so what you've done is you've brought it into the past by giving us this bro counterpoint you uh, introduce the cello give it some solemnity and of course the harpsichord as well which I think has so much resonance with other sort of holiday sounds it's dulcimer like it feels like it perfectly fit in with the rest of what's going on in your album which I'd, I'd love to dive into a little bit more and I, I want to ask you there's a lot of Christmas albums. Why Why another one? Because I couldn't find the one I liked. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I did it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. What's the problem with Christmas albums? Well, for me, the problem with Christmas albums is that uh, they've been co-opted by capitalism and, and that has mirrored what Christmas has become in our society. So I come from a secular Jewish family, but we celebrated Christmas because we wanted to fit in, essentially. Mm. It's not about um, Jesus anymore. It's much more about Santa Claus. It's about the gifts. Right. And those songs become the soundtrack of every commercial, every trip shopping. And... Right it loses touch with what I loved about Christmas songs when I was growing up, which is sitting around the piano. You know, our family was around the piano. My brother, who's a musician as well, one of the two of us would would be there. You know, I've been playing these songs for decades. I have my little twists and turns and my little arrangements, and I've I've always had them. And, you know, as Mm -hmm. I grew up and started to have sing-alongs with, like, you know, my friends, people my age, and, you know, even more recently, I see... How songs like Last Christmas or All I Want for Christmas is You, I see just as a pure entertainer the, the power of those songs. And people, you know, they take their beer bottle and use it as a fake microphone and they just let go. And, they, you know, <laughs> and I, in a way, had the same problem with All I Want for Christmas is You in a more strong form, which is Mariah's voice is so strident. And um, right. it's like a giant hairdryer that no one can, you know, <laughs> stand up against. me a while to find the melody of that song. I know that sounds strange, but it's so much about her voice and the production is so intense. I think there's 50 tracks of sleigh bells with like on maximum <laughs> reverb setting and it just really it really like wow, okay. Your version of that song though really grabs the the first half of All I Want for Christmas is You, which we've broken down on the show before. And that song, I think, in some ways, 
illustrates exactly what you're talking about. The first half of All I Want for Christmas is, is sort of nodding to a much older style of uh, of caroling. It has uh, some darker edges. The instrumentation is much simpler and organic. And it's the second half of the song, which we most associate with the sort of um, mall shopping holiday Christmas time. It becomes very pop production. It's an excellent production. It's wonderful. But it's the other side of this sort of more if you will, superficial side of Christmas. And so your version really just focuses on that first half. Well, and and I will say that the melody um, is not, I think, very easy for everyone to sing along with. Now, that doesn't stop them from trying. So when I, <laughs> when people get to the right level of drunkenness at a Christmas sing-along, <laughs> that's when you whip out all I want for the, Christmas is you. It's the third set. But it's hard to sing. There's a lot of range there, you know? Most Christmas songs, you don't move your hand when you're playing them on the piano. You know, you're just kind of like, okay, you know. uh... Right, right. I think it was uh, Irving Berlin who wrote so many great holiday songs. Stay, yeah, you sort of stay in the major scale. You know, you're probably not going to go past the the range of about... One octave. Two, three, four notes, even less. Really, I would say less than a fifth. And that there tends to be a lot of scales in those songs. Scales tend to be easier to sing because you always right. have the next note in mind. Jumps are harder to sing than scales. And here we have, of course, that's just a scale. Right, right. You know, We Three Kings, same. Or mm. um, what's that one? The First Noel. Right. You know, I mean, Joy to the World is literally a major scale. (laughs) You know, so this is all designed to be easy to sing. And then you have the Mariah, where all of a sudden, it's like, oh, this is for professionals only, you know. (laughs) You know, my hand's going all over the place here, you know. Syncopated, big leaps. Yeah, Every phrase has these sort of complicated arpeggios with these kind of blue notes and very sneaky chromatic twists and turns that you Mm. tend to not hear in the old-fashioned Christmas songs. But Mm. in the new Christmas songs, starting with the jazzy era, Bing Crosby, you do have sneakier melodies in general. And Mm. I would say this is around the time that Christmas songs start to have the word I in them. This is, Uh. I think, related to a kind of communal simplicity versus individual complexity or individual idiosyncrasy, if you will. Even White Christmas has a very sneaky melody. Check this out. Uh. And then this. (laughs) You know, to find those notes, you probably have to have some vocal training to really pull them off. Yeah. And so we're in an era of the individual already with these pop songs. So the real trick on my album was... How to reconcile this kind of, for better or for worse, this sort of capitalist, individualist Christmas aesthetic with the communal folk aesthetic. And the, the, the answer turned out to be, I have to make the carols my own, make them very individual, take lots of liberties, turn them into minor, add bars, change the key, be uber playful as much as possible. People can really hear Gonzo, capital G. And then with the, with the selfish songs, Strangely, I had to play them less selfishly and turn them into Christmas canon by removing the artist, removing the towering voice of Mariah Carey or of George Michael. There is often a melancholy in a great holiday track. You have a song like In the Bleak Midwinter. In the Bleak Midwinter Long, long even the song Last Christmas, right? This is a song about love that doesn't work out in the holiday times. As much joy as there is in this season, there's also, there can be some darkness. It is the period, it's winter. Is that a certain aesthetic that you're trying to capture? Is that, does, does, a, does a, a holiday song for you need to have as much dark as it has light? Especially in 2020, yes. Yeah, right. I I could sense already in March with all the changes that the world was going through collectively that it would be a different Christmas. And that's what pushed me over to the edge to start recording. Mm. Yes, I think there's a certain forced smile to Christmas songs. And Mm. it's only telling half the story. Even a good Stevie Wonder Christmas song, 
a good Nat King Cole. It's not always the right mood for those, in my opinion. I keep on thinking mm. that Christmas is a very complex time emotionally, at least for me. It yeah. was always tied to a kind of void between the dream that I'm being sold of what Christmas should be and then the time with the family never quite measuring up to that. I think mm. a lot of people can relate to that. Mm. And so I thought, well, I have to make the album not just for sitting in front of the, the, you know, the fireplace with a brandy. I think there's a little bit of that on my album as well. But how about also running upstairs to your childhood bedroom and hiding from your family? Mm. What about that? Where's the Christmas music for that? So I just mm. wanted to soundtrack something that had a bit more realism. I knew that there would be more complex emotions this year anyhow, that maybe yeah. the world was catching up to my mixed version of Christmas finally. <laughs> uh, and so I thought I'm going to go for it and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do these transformations to the, to the more well-known songs and to the lesser known songs. I'm going to really play it straight in a way. And that's how I proceeded just sort of in this, this dual way of like, how far can I push some of these songs uh, into a kind of playful territory where you really feel that very often my approach to music is that music is a toy. We play music. I want to play with it. Exactly. Now, when I'm composing, that's, you know, the composing process and the uh, getting to a point where you're ready to record and or play live, is a v those are very different right. processes Rigorous. for me. Uh, and the composition process, in a way, has more pretension to it. It is more difficult. It involves more self-judgment issues of identity. Mm. Uh, and so you can go down some rabbit holes and some false paths, let's say. It's mm. more of a struggle for me. What's always easiest for me is when the song is in my fingers and it feels like it's existed forever, whether I've written it or not. At least it feels that way. And then I can be nonchalant, playful, and play that version, the version that has to exist in that moment, in that concert hall, in my living room, wherever I happen to be playing it. Mm. And I fast forwarded to that with this album. Mm. All of a sudden, I was like, wow, no compositional struggle? This is fantastic. <laughs> I've never really done a covers <laughs> album before. I've compiled some covers here and there, yeah. but this was something else. I, it's like I got to that playful stage almost instantly, with the exception of the original song that I wrote together with Feist and the cover of, um, of a Dave Berman song that Jarvis sort of brought to my attention. Other than those, I was just right away and, you know, get up in the morning, turn on, turn on the, the machine and start recording and just waiting mm. for that perfect, imperfect take. Hmm. Well, tell, tell me about that. You do have an original track on here, The Bannister Bow with Feist. But Christmas can be made as new as footprints on the ground So when the snow is tall as me I'll make our banister pound You said it's a, a different approach to uh, the playing these songs that have been under your fingers your entire life, sitting around the piano with your family. When you think about writing a Christmas song, what do you want to communicate? You have these internal struggles with the the falseness and the capitalist nature of Christmas, um, but also the the beauty of being around family. What is, what is the banister bow? What are you wanting to do with that song? Well, the song exists because of Feist's insistence on needing to own every syllable of the words she sings. She's a very much a textual musician. Mm. Uh, and uh, if it doesn't work for her on a lyrical level, it's never going to work. Mm. So we knew that if, if we're going to do a song for my album, it either has to be an existing song that she can get behind and quickly it became clear that she needed to uh, try to find her own words to describe mm. her experience of Christmas. But we did struggle mm. for a while. And at some point, I was talking about the album, and I said, in some ways, I want to, like everything in my career, I'm respectful of tradition in certain moments, but I'm always very conscious that I want to try to create new traditions. Hmm. Um, I want to be a man of my time, which means that I place myself after a past and before a future. 
And uh, somehow it led to her saying, well, I have a new tradition in my family. We don't cut down a tree every year. We think it's cruel to waste mm. the trees. You know, in January, you see all these dead mm-hmm. trees lying in the road. And as she says, uh, silver tinsel running in the gutters like blood. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and so she goes and takes, you know, already fallen dead branches from the ground uh, at her countryside home in Canada. And she creates these these kind of uh, garlands and boughs and ties them around the banister of her staircase. So she has a new tradition that is, in one sense, connected with Christmas, uh, but in another sense is very 2020. It's, in a way, Mm. an ecological message, but also Mm. a message about how tradition is important, but creating new ones is even more important. Mm. And once we had that sort of way in, it was, of course, very easy for her to, in a way, write the song. It all came rather quickly. And Mm. musically, we placed it in that tradition of white Christmas uh, it's not written as a carol with a very simple melody. It really has those twists and turns that I was talking about earlier. Very chromatic. Mm. So right away, that, that, that would be an equivalent to that sneaky white Christmas. That sort of right, hard-to-find right. note would be here. That that's kind of it's that little sweet note. It's kind of juicy, you know. Uh, and um, and I think as soon as she sort of came up with that little melodic cell, uh, it became very clear what direction we were going in. Much more mm. Bing Crosby, I would say, right. than than original Christmas Carol. They did the work that beauty does till leaves shook to the ground and rain like candy cane made snow to turn the season round it's nice to have a new song on here that does feel truly fitting for this year and it feels like a tradition uh given where our earth is at that would be a really good one for many of us to pick up so i hope that this song continues into many years i know that this record a very chilly Christmas is going to make it into my frequent playlist. My my number one record, I think, that goes on repeat throughout the entire holiday season is usually Charlie Brown's Christmas. I like that record because both we have one of, I mean, just brilliant piano playing, um, but also, oh, who's the composer? Vince Guaraldi. Vince Guaraldi, thank you. Uh, so, I mean, so wonderful uh, piano, and it has a lot of that, those, just as many dark minor twists as it has major uplifts. No, it, and, it is, if there is a, a model conscious slash unconscious, uh, it's definitely the Guaraldi album by far. Yeah. It's instrumental yeah. mostly. Uh, and uh, it manages to do incredible storytelling around these songs. And Guaraldi is a highly underrated musician. I'm just glad he has at least this Peanuts music that sort of brought him uh, completely out of what would have been, I guess, total obscurity if he hadn't um, gotten the gig to do the the Peanuts music. But even his non-Peanuts albums are really lovely. He's a wonderful musician. Well, I, I think that A Very Chilly Christmas is going to end up right along there with uh, the Vince Guaraldi record for me. Uh, very exciting to share. You also are going to be sharing it uh, with the public in a single special event. Do you want to tell us about A Very Chilly Christmas special? Yes. Well, it became obvious when I made this album that that there's not going to be a lot of touring. This album was made, I wouldn't say in response to, but certainly goaded along by the fact that it was going to be a different year with less traditional contact, whether it's in our social lives, but certainly in our musical lives. I am a entertainer before I'm anything else. I compose so that I may entertain, not other way around. Uh, and uh, that is my lifeblood. My mental health has taken a hit by not being up there, to be totally yeah. honest. Um, yeah. So I thought, Sorry. well, I at least have to do one filmed concert, which quickly morphed into the idea of doing an old-fashioned Christmas special like we grew up watching with sketches, with guests, 
uh, all the all the sort of in a way bad high school acting that you would uh, expect and love to see um, in in <laughs> such a special. Uh, so we quickly put it together um, with a a uh, TV station out here in in, uh, in Europe. But for those who don't live in either a French speaking or German speaking country, it's going to be a non replayable ticketed live stream. It's just ten bucks. Uh, you can only watch it on December 23rd, um, called A Very Truly Christmas Special. There's Jarvis, Cocker, there's Feist, there's all the rest of my Parisian musical family uh, c- coming in to help out, and uh, a wonderful actress who plays Santa Claus um, going to therapy, and I'm her therapist, and I use the music, <laughs> uh, my approach to uh, Christmas songs, to sort of uh, get her through the various stages that one would do in and when they're doing psychoanalysis. So uh, it's... It's quite touching. It's also quite ridiculous. Um, so it's a very chilly Christmas special. What else can I say? <laughs> you can just go to my website and uh, and buy yourself a ticket and have yourself a very chilly Christmas. All right. So that's chillygonzalez.com on December 23rd. If you want to see a very chilly Christmas special, the record is a very chilly Christmas. I was wondering if you might play us out uh, a bit on your melancholic version of Old Lang Syne. What do you call it? I call it Old Lang Minor with a Y. I somehow couldn't resist. You know, when you're dealing with public domain songs, you have this wonderful chance to rename them if you like. And uh, I didn't rename. At one point, I had a version of the album where almost every song was renamed with a little gonzo twist. But um, in the end, I only opted for Old Lang Minor. Not a Christmas song, but the post-Christmas song. So here's hoping 2021 is going to be a bit better than 2020. A beautiful thing. And just to leave it on an optimistic note, I'm going to finish on a major chord. That was gorgeous. Thank you, Gonzo. What a beautiful thing. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 